Hello and welcome to a special mini episode of the More From Law podcast. This instalment of the seven-part Flex Practice Area podcast series covers a variety of areas in banking and finance law with Leo Hutchins. We'll discuss what this practice area is all about, the average day-to-day tasks of a trainee or paralegal, and what personalities and working styles it's best suited to. This podcast mini-series is brought to you by Flex, an online platform that provides a number of short and long-term paralegal opportunities across a number of sectors. Upload your CV and register in under 60 seconds to get access to hundreds of flexible paralegal opportunities and gain real-world commercial experience to help further your career. Simply head to the link in this episode's description to sign up today. So hi, Leo. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And I must admit, when I when I went through all of law school, when I went through all of my studies, I don't think the word derivatives ever came up once in my legal studies. And uh, certainly sounds like a very complicated uh, sort of financial product and financial term to use. But hopefully people who have never heard of this before or might have heard of it a little bit in film or anything else will get a bit of an insight into what this kind of area of derivatives and LIBOR and everything else practice looks like from from the legal side of things, um, especially given that you've been doing it in-house as well. So um, I guess a good sort of introductory question is how would you sort of explain this practice area in terms of what you do? Is it comparable to anything else that you might have done previously in your legal education? Um, and obviously, what's your sort of background today and your experiences as well? Yeah, so um, I guess if I kind of start off with a brief overview of kind of what banking finance is as a practice area. Um so the way I think of it is that at its most basic, it's just one party lending money or financing another party. And often this will be between a bank and another company. Mm-hmm. But as things get more complex, um, or it could be another private company to another private company or a group of banks to one company. Um, and then when you kind of delve deeper down, into the sort of different areas of specialism. There are just so, so many um, areas that banking finance lawyers specialize into. So just to kind of rack off a few off the top of my head, um, you've got your kind of basic bank lending, you've got project finance, fund finance, asset finance, um, derivatives, which I'll speak about um, in a bit, um, capital markets, um, Islamic finance and green finance, two very kind of niche, but up-and-coming areas as well um, and then you have the sort of regulatory side of things as well which I've um, which I'll also go into more detail um, so I think yeah the two that I can probably speak most about um, out of that list is probably the derivatives and regulatory side of things because when I was a paralegal at NatWest Markets I sat in the um, derivatives and regulatory advisory team so to kind of start off on the derivative side um, I'll, I'll start off explaining what a derivative actually is um, and in its most simple form a derivative is a tradable financial instrument that just derives its value off of an underlying asset so that asset could be a stock uh, a bond a commodity um, currency um, and without getting sort of too technical, the different uh, types of derivatives you might have are options, uh, future, forward, or a swap. And I, I'll, I'll leave your listeners to go and look at what these actually are because I will definitely butcher the nuances of the definitions if I if I have a go at them. Um, so the work that I mainly did was kind of in what's called a prime brokerage service where an investment bank offers trading services in various financial instruments to kind of big asset managers and funds. 
And in my case, one of the most common was a foreign exchange or a foreign currency option. And this basically gives the purchasing party a right. Um, so basically gives them an option, hence, hence the name to buy or sell a currency at a certain exchange rate before a specified date. So to kind of give this a bit more of a, um, an example, a bit of color. Um, so imagine that I'm a private equity fund and my main base is in the UK, but I'm also mm-hmm. investing a lot in American companies. So some of the earnings that I'm going to be getting from those investments in the companies will be in US dollars. Now, um, I mean, I, I might be worried. Um, I mean, let's, let's say Trump's been sending out some pretty wacky tweets and the dollar is volatile and it's, um, flailing around against the pound. So I want to lock in this exchange rate at a favorable guaranteed rate, which basically just provides me with certainty as to the amount of money I'm making on an investment. And this is commonly referred to as a hedge. Um, it, it's basically just a way of de, de-risking transactions. Um, mm-hmm. And on the on the legal documentation side of this, the most um, common and probably important piece of documentation involved in it is called an ISDA Master Agreement. Now, ISDA stands for the International Swaps and Derivatives Association, which is just an international policy body for derivatives that created this document to standardize and harmonize a lot of derivative trading. And I, I think the earliest ones of these goes, I think it was the late 80s or something um, that the first ISDA was created. So it's gone through various iterations. And the master agreement part is basically what sets out your basic boilerplate clauses that don't change. And then you have a schedule, which is just another bit of the document which tags onto the master and this is where the parties put all their kind of bespoke terms around the derivative and is often where lawyers um, negotiate a lot of the terms and as a sort of paralegal or a trainee in this area you might be expected to um, check ancillary documentation to the master agreement um, you might also be checking certain clauses or provisions in the ISRA itself. Um, I mean, one one time there was a client that I was working on, and I was negotiating a piece of ancillary documentation with an asset manager in Hong Kong, which was incredibly scary. Um, but it was still, I mean, a, a great experience for anyone. So it's it's quite mm-hmm. an interesting area of law. Um, so that's just sort of a quick whirlwind tour of derivatives, um, and they can get far far more complex and can form parts of sort of much bigger structured financing deals um, and that's that's often where a law firm with specialism in derivatives will step in to assess. Now um, on the regulatory side um, of my life at NatWest Markets um, a lot of it was dedicated to the issue of LIBOR and mm-hmm. I, I think anyone who wants to go into banking finance just needs to have at least a sort of base knowledge of LIBOR and what its impacts are because without a doubt, I think it will affect a lot of the work that banking finance lawyers do in the next few years and beyond that potentially. So as a, a quick sort of oversight of LIBOR, um, it's, it's just basically a rate that different large international banks will publish. And this rate is basically what they would lend to each other overnight. So it stands for the London Interbank um, Overnight Rate LIBOR. Now, 
this rate underpins something like $250 trillion worth of financial products, I think, at the moment worldwide. And it basically just sets the interest rate on all these products. However, the issue of this is that in 2012, some banks basically colluded in setting these rates to get a more advantageous rate that they could then profit off. Now, as to be expected, mm -hmm. the Financial Conduct Authority, which is the financial one of the financial regulators here in the UK, turned around and said, no, we're not happy with that, and that they wanted it phased out come the end of 21, um, start of 22. And this is going to be replaced by another rate, which is called Sonia. Now, the reason this is such an issue is, um, as I said before, it underpins trillions and trillions um, of dollars worth of financial products. And no one in the industry ever really thought um, that LIBOR would ever cease to exist. So you now have the majority of the world's financial system that is about to suddenly have this underlying interest rate that is no longer represented by a reliable number. So the task for banking finance and regulatory lawyers and some of what I was involved in is just working mm -hmm. out what contains a LIBOR rate, working out what the legal restrictions are in terms of changing the rate. Um, so things like do we need consent from a lender and a loan to change it, um, seeing if there are any provisions to fall back on that cater for a situation where LIBOR doesn't exist, and then just negotiating with the counterparty to rewrite the contract. So I was looking at loans, bonds, derivatives, securitizations, basically anything that an investment bank deals with that has a libel rate embedded in it, which is basically everything, um, and then just understanding what the exposure was. Um, so, I mean, libel just comprises a very small part of a banking finance regulatory lawyer's work. There are just heaps of um, financial regulations that um, they have to keep on top of, but this is certainly one of the ones that is um, very pressing at the moment. And I think just sort of zooming out for a second and thinking why it's so important um, is that there will be without a doubt so many discussions and negotiations that a lot of banking finance lawyers will have some input into in the coming year around their clients' movement away from the rate um, and if their clients should continue to use the rate. And this will continue well into 2022, I think, um, as well. Even when LIBOR is meant to have finished, it will keep sort of trundling on. And it's, it's basically an unavoidable problem for the banking finance sector. Therefore, clients will be concerned about it. Therefore, lawyers will be involved. And I think as a junior, if you can show that you have a sort of mature understanding of its effect and its importance, then I think that will really make you stand out in the coming years. Fantastic. And I guess, how did that all translate into a day-to-day -day basis or task-to-task -task basis in terms of the actual things you were working on uh, in your role? You or I had to have a very fundamental understanding of basically um, where all these products fit within um, the bank itself. So a lot of my day-to-day -day was dealing with the actual business people themselves. So um, some of the traders, um, I would be having kind of meetings with to sort of understand where um, their LIBOR exposure was, um, uh, what products they had exactly. Um, so having that sort of good relationship with the business people was a, a big part um, of my day to day. Mm -hmm. um, so um, then there was um, reviewing the actual transaction documents themselves. Um, that was both 
Um, like I was saying before, in the prime brokerage process, that's more of a transactional side of banking and finance. So that was drafting certain bits of ancillary documentation that sort of all go together to complete a prime brokerage transaction and then sending it on to the counterparty and just making sure that the right people were executing it, that they had sort of the authority to execute it and then just making sure that all the documents were in the right places and everything was in order. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was a lot of uh, non-disclosure agreement work as well, which I'm sure is, um, which I know is fairly common to most um, kind of transactional areas of law. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just making sure that if um, the bank is going to enter into sort of commercial discussions with one of these counterparties that they want to do a deal with, um, they... Um, that all confidential information is basically kept confidential. So that's sort of the pre-discussion and transaction phase. Mm-hmm. Um, and then more of a sort of um, a sort of oversight role was just making sure that any regulatory changes that were going on or any sort of these big policy bodies. So um, is there was one of the ones I mentioned before. Um, there's also the LMA, um, the Loan Market Association, just making sure that any sort of guidelines on regulatory changes that were being published by them, um, we sort of had an oversight of what these changes were and just storing these in a central repository so that the lawyers in our team basically knew where to go to find all this information. So it was a real sort of broad um, range of tasks, but... um, at the same time, having that sort of diversity was really interesting as well. Fantastic. And I guess on that basis then, taking into all of that in account, would you say that there's a particular type of person or particular personality traits or anything else like that that you think would be most suited to this sort of style of work? <laughs> Definitely. Um, <laughs> I think um, I think to really enjoy banking and finance and to really succeed in it, I think the most important thing is to really enjoy the technical complexity um, Mm -hmm. of of finance itself and in order to do this you do have to spend a lot of time learning terminology that is incredibly finance driven Um, Mm -hmm. I mean there were so many meetings that I was in with um, these sort of um, traders in inside the investment bank and um, They'd sort of be throwing out all this league, uh, all this finance jargon, mm. and I'd just be sitting there like, "What are these people talking about?" <laughs> and it's, it, but it's, it's just one of those things where you just have to spend the time learning this terminology because if you're drafting a document and there's just all these weird and wonderful words that you've never heard of, you're you're just going to be so lost. And particularly if someone comes to you and asks a question about it, you're going to have no idea. So I think things like the Financial Times are great for getting a general understanding of how the finance world operates. Um, Investopedia as well is, an, is another great one that I used regularly to look up various um, little terms that people sent me. Um, so yeah, having an appreciation and understanding for technical complexity I think is really important. Um, I think being very detail-driven as well and like mm-hmm. detail um, is so important because There'll be, I mean, I've, I've looked at loan agreements before that are kind of 300 pages long and mm. the definitions page in itself is about 10 to 15 pages long. And 
you really need to understand the little nuances in different um, definitions and clauses because the basic purpose of these loan documents is to cater for as many situations as possible, things like events of default um, that the borrower might go through, um, and to sort of protect both sides in as best way as possible, you need to understand what these definitions actually mean. And that's so, so important. Um, so yeah, detail driven. Um, I think having an appreciation for the sort of bigger picture of things, mm-hmm. um, when you're, when you're sort of looking at a derivative and you, at, at, at sort of face value, you think, why on earth does someone want to swap a euro for a dollar? And, when you look at it in the bigger picture of the deal, it's a lot easier to understand the commercial purposes behind it. And I think when you have an appreciation for that bigger picture, it also makes it a lot more enjoyable mm-hmm. because you can kind of understand why the client is doing this. Um, and rather than just sort of trawling through, you know, pages and pages and pages of um, documentation, um, it's sort of having that real world relevance. Um, so that's something that's quite nice. Um, and then I, I guess this, I, this is sort of applicable to lots of areas of law, but, um, dealing, being good at dealing with people and liking dealing with people. Mm-hmm. Um, banking finance is an incredibly deadline driven, um, practice area and you need to be able to temper people's expectations and also build relationships with people around you so that you can work more effectively and i think if you can really build relationships and demonstrate that you are a reliable person um particularly clients will pick up on that and they'll come to you and that will in the long run have um a much more positive effect on your career i think and make it much more um successful um and I think just to sort of round it off as well, really wanting an international career, mm-hmm. I, that's something that I really realized and, and, and wasn't really expecting when I first started um, in banking finance was that finance is incredibly globally driven. There are companies now who are just doing deals in every single corner of the earth mm. and particularly if you want to go and work at a sort of a big city firm um, and you that's that's sort of what you're really set on, then without a doubt, if you go into banking finance at a city firm, you will be dealing with very international companies that span multiple jurisdictions. Um, so definitely having a desire um, uh, to sort of have that international element to your career, I think is something that will um, really help out if you're looking to go into banking finance. No, fantastic. A really comprehensive look into what it is. And I've certainly learned something from this pretty complex area of law as well, just releasing to you today, Leo. But thanks so much for coming on and for and for sharing your insights. Where can people go to learn more about yourself and everything we've sort of talked about today? Um, so probably LinkedIn is the best one. I check that fairly regularly. So <laughs> if anyone has any questions or anything, just drop me a message and I'm more than happy to speak to anyone. Perfect. Well, thanks again for coming on and for sharing your insights. It's great to have you. Yeah, thanks very much, Harry. Thanks so much for listening to this edition of the More From Law podcast. If you'd like to support the show, please rate it five stars on the iTunes store 
and follow the show on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps the show reach more listeners. If you're looking for more tips, resources and guides, you can visit my website www.harryclarklaw.com where you can also sign up to my newsletter and stay up to date with everything that I'm up to. For now though, I'll see you in the next episode of More From Law.